welcome to the Spark Podcast, a podcast for life science leaders on a course to reach the next frontier in drug discovery. My name is Kristen Stalkup. I am your host of the podcast. Along with our other hosts, Dirk Arts and Andy Lippitz, we invite you to join us in thought-provoking conversations with evolutionary life science leaders about what it takes to spark change and how we can lean in right now. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Spark. Today, I have with me Dan Brenner, who is the CEO of One and Health. Dan, thank you so much for, for joining me. I'm not even sure if you actually pronounce your company name differently, but I think you can tell us all about that. So maybe you can start us off with a quick introduction about yourself and your background and your company. Thanks, Dirk. Appreciate you having me and excited for the discussion. So you did hit the nail on the head. It is One and Health. The background to getting here was a bit winding, as many are. So I started in life sciences management consulting for nutrition and pharma companies. Early in my career, I took the leap to try something pretty new and different and became an e-commerce physical products brand marketer. So I started a few brands, spun those up, had a couple of successful exits. One of them sold to a strategic. And I wanted to kind of bring both of those disciplines together, the life sciences side and the direct to consumer side. And so that was the genesis of One in Health. So now One in Health exists to help sponsors fully enroll studies and while doing that kind of create common sense technology solutions that make the lives of site staff easier, make the lives of patients easier, and ultimately provide pharma and biotech sponsors what they've been missing in terms of data along the recruitment funnel. Nice. So basically tackling the biggest problem in, uh, in life sciences, or at least in clinical trials. Yeah, we're trying. I mean, it takes a village, but the goal is to get a little bit better every day. We're excited about what we're doing, and we're excited to be a part of a space that I think is probably the most important industry on the whole planet. Yeah, if you're a fan of humanity, then uh, I fully agree with that. <laughs> Big fan um, of humanity. Yeah, same, same. The name One and Health. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I actually didn't think it would always require explanation. And I guess those are kind of the myths of like coming up with names by yourself. But the idea is that obviously a protocol has an N equals a number of patients you need to recruit. And I think the, the concept that we were trying to come in against is this N equals 500 or N equals 1000, whatever the protocol said, but really we see it more as, as going after an individual and creating ads and content that engaged a person, an individual person. And so one in health just speaks to the one individual that we're trying to recruit 500 times or a thousand times. And I wish the name didn't necessarily require such an explanation, but that is, that is why we call that. And honestly, at this point, it's too late. We've been around for almost four years now. So I don't, I think the ship has sailed on changing the name. I think we're stuck. No, I think it's a great name. This is exactly what I thought it meant or referred to, but I just wanted to make sure I got it right. I think it's, it's pretty clear. So tell me about that. How do, you, how do you target the individual? Some of the stuff you've learned in, in your past, but is that really possible in a clinical trial context? Yeah, it's a great question. I like to think of what we do as things that we're uniquely qualified to do. And so much of the team are actually folks with backgrounds similar to me in e-commerce performance marketing. And a lot of what we learn there in trying to reach customers for certain physical goods is how do you create messaging that's going to resonate with them for them to be catalyzed and take some action. And studies really are no different. You have to create something that's compelling and a language that they understand and a language that they use that presents an offer to them that provides 
the necessary catalyst for them to take that action. And so one of the things that we identified early on is that many of our peers in this group are focusing a lot on the study, what the study needs, what researchers are looking for. And we actually thought that that was a backwards way of thinking about it, right? If you want somebody to take some action, you have to propose an offer. And so a lot of the way that we look at creating content or creating advertising and copy for getting patients engaged is we actually go into patient communities and we figure out how they talk about their condition. What are the words that they use? What are they looking to solve? And so instead of talking about studies or what researchers are looking for, we talk about how the condition impacts them, what their lives are likely like because we understand what their mornings are like if they had a migraine the day before or if they have osteoarthritis, what it's like getting out of bed. I mean, those moments we can create compelling copy around. And so creating ads and content around what's in it for the patient is really central to kind of our ethos. Do you then create individual focused acts, but ultimately the group sees the same ads? Or do you also have a technique to even vary the delivery to the individual, which would be taking it you know, even a step further? We'll try to paint some pictures with words, though. We're talking about some imagery stuff, but I'll, I'll try to, to paint it like this. As smart as you can be in a conference room or in a creative discussion with your peers, the truth is, is that patients decide. And the benefit of direct-to-patient recruitment is that you can spin thousands of permutations of different ads, and the patients will actually tell you what resonates the most by their actions that they take. And so while we do try to come up with winning ads, we actually think of it in terms of a bell curve and try to come up with a lot of different concepts that we think may work. And sometimes we think they may not work, but we're usually surprised by a couple of concepts that actually come through because what patients are going to respond to might not be the thing that sounds the best in the meeting or the best in the creative brief. And so it is a wide spectrum of things that we create. A lot of it reflects what we learn in those patient communities, but also it reflects of how we think patients are going to interact with content depending on the channel that they're in. And so a Facebook ad might have a completely different look and feel or a completely different message than a TikTok or a Snapchat ad. That kind of patient centricity, and, and I know that's kind of the industry term, but that really is how we see it, has to be derived of like the core message that presents the offer, but also you have to layer in what on that ad channel, how are they going to be consuming the content in a way that catalyzes action? When we discussed this before the recording, you mentioned some surprises when it comes to channels, but before we go there, I'd love to here, what's the biggest surprise you've seen when it comes to actually the content? Like where you were like, well, this this variation is never going to work. And then and then it did. Can you, uh, can you tell us a story about that? Yeah, sure. You might think that I'll give a fibromyalgia example. We're, we're running this for, for a digital therapeutics company. And we have obviously this litany and this ad packet of different concepts and different angles and different things. And, and what we found was the best performing, particularly for that demographic segment, weren't ads that actually showed anything to do with the condition. The number one ad, if you can imagine a rainbow spectrum over somebody's eye, hitting them right in the center of their iris. And that is what we call a thumb stopper. And so if you, if you know anything about advertising online, you only have a quarter of a second to create an impression with somebody that actually makes them want to read your ad. And so it doesn't actually matter what the copy is unless somebody's willing to read it, right? So we actually were most surprised by that fibromyalgia ad because it really didn't indicate anything to do with the condition, but it was a thumb stopper in that it was a very, very stark and visually interesting concept. And it forced the participant to then read what was on the ad and it created flow through from that. And so sometimes the things that you put into the ad packet thinking that is a cool image, maybe we'll see. And sometimes it's absolutely insane, the results, because uh, patients respond in a way that you don't expect. I'm I'm seeing all kinds of uh, dull e uh, applications here now, but uh, let's let's not get into stable diffusion just yet. Um, so back to what you said, you're maximizing the top of the funnel in this case, right? You're just by creating a thumb stopper ad, you just have 
a lot more people actually evaluating the copy and with that uh, enhancing enrollment. So did you see like a big drop off after the initial stage, but you still ended up with a higher absolute number or like, well, how was, how did that develop downwards in the funnel? Yeah. The truth is, is that patient recruitment is, is an enormous arithmetic problem. It's not complicated math. It's just tedious math. And you hit the terminology exactly correct. The, the top of the funnel is what we're trying to maximize. And when we get to the middle funnel, we're trying to optimize the middle of the funnel and the bottom funnel, so on and so forth. But the idea is that each stage, you want to be excellent at making sure that you're getting the best shot on goal. And so what we're trying to do, this is a nuance, but it's important. What we're trying to do is get people that would perhaps scroll through an ad that looked like a clinical study ad. And we're trying to capture the folks that would never really consider a clinical study ad if you ask them if they would, but their actions, right? They're interested in the ad. And so you've unlocked this whole new segment of patients that never would have thought to join a study, but because you've spoken to them or reached them through a visually interesting way, they're actually self-selecting in. And so expanding that top of the funnel, right? You do that by three to four times. You've just increased by an order of magnitude in some cases what happens at the bottom of the funnel because these people are engaged. So a lot of these things are just very, very small changes, but because recruitment really is this elegant, beautiful math problem, making those micro changes create massive results downstream. Fascinating. I'm just thinking, how do you make sure that these potential participants are even remotely eligible? Like you want to have some kind of filtering, right? Because otherwise you're going to end up with a million people just being like, oh, that's an amazing image, but they don't even sure. have the, the, the condition you're after. That's a critical part. We, this is the 80-20 rule, right? You, you want 80% of inclusion exclusion criteria to be met with 20% of the questions that you might ask them. And so every study and any recruitment vendor that's worth their salt is going to have some level of pre-screener that's thoughtfully put together that, that handles this. And so you want to ask a number of questions that properly pre-qualifies an individual for the study, but not so many questions that this person has to have a Gatorade and a water break before they actually get to the end of it because it's an hour long. And so the goal is to come up with this sweet spot of getting the maximum flow through that middle of the funnel now where we're on the screener, um, while, while also making sure that you've got folks that the sites aren't going to be wasting their times on. And this is a really, really critical point of not just dumping on the sites or dumping on the technology company that's got the, the DCT solution. You want to make sure that the, the infrastructure is set to handle the right level of volume. And that takes a certain level of pre-qualification. But then I guess your approach wouldn't work as well for rare disease. At least phone stoppers would not maybe make a lot of sense because you, I'm assuming, spend a lot of money on unnecessary clicks or how does that work? I'll be really honest. Rare diseases are really difficult. And, and I don't think that's a secret, but I don't think that we've got a silver bullet for every TA. I think some of these, they're really, really difficult conditions. They're really difficult patient populations. They're really hard to recruit because of the amount of patients that you have, even in, in the world in some cases, that would qualify. And so um, our thesis around rare and oncology and some of these um, less prevalent conditions is this. If you're going to try to reach a human in the year 2022, you should use the internet to your advantage. And some of the ways that you can do that are by creating some awareness campaigns, by trying to get people outside of just the individual patient, looking at their family members and their support systems, right? If you think about the three degrees of separation that might get to a rare or an oncology patient, what can you say to the people around them that might get them to share a link with them? And so the way that we look at those, is not that we're going to take a, an N equals 100 protocol and enroll it in three months. The, the goal is just to get incrementally better on these really, really hard TAs. There's no simple solution that we can promise in eight weeks we're going to have your study filled. But with a, a concerted effort and using the internet to our advantage, we think we can do a lot better. 
Nice. You know, there's other companies in the space that uh, that are doing obviously patient recruitment, and I th- I'm pretty sure a lot of them also use the internet and use targeted ads. So, what kind of insights and innovation are you bringing into um, you know into this space from from your previous experience that helps you perform better than others? I would say there are a couple of things that we focus on that make us a little different. The first is that we are performance marketers at heart, which means we look at the entirety of the internet as the place where individuals are likely to hang out. And so many folks are using the obvious channels like Google or Facebook as kind of the, the massive two. And those are great ad products. I mean, they're that large for a reason. That's not where all the patients are hanging out. And frankly, that's where all the clinical trial ads are. So certainly overpopulated, but we're active on Facebook and Google, TikTok and Snap and Reddit and Quora, Pinterest. And depending on the European or Latam market or Asian market, there's different nuanced channels depending on those locations. But the goal is, is to do an evaluation as to where the people are hanging out. So we, we like to focus on a pretty holistic approach, not just trying to throw a Facebook ad and call it direct-to-patient advertising. I think that can work. And for many TAs, that's enough. But for, for several more, it's not. So that's one thing. The second thing, and, and I think it probably is maybe the least talked about piece in patient recruitment. I think a lot of folks could talk to the, the same types of topics that I just went through. But I think the the part that's maybe least spoken about is this last mile of patient recruitment, and particularly around the burden that sites sometimes have to carry. And so one of the things that, that we didn't actually start out being this way, but we have intentionally invested and created now the largest department at our company is our development team. Our, our IT department is now the largest of creating common sense solutions that make lives for sites easier and makes reporting for sponsors better and makes the friction of getting in studies simpler for patients. And so I mentioned what we do as performance marketers, that's one thing, but what we do in technology of making sure that sites, when they get onboarded, yeah, it's another password, yeah, it's another platform, but it's actually a product that they like to use. It's simple to talk to patients. It has all of the logging and all of the ins and outs that you need in order to get that patient into for their first appointment for screening. Um, right at their fingertips to make it easy for them. That piece is actually a really important part because sometimes we think about the patient and we think about the study and the protocol and all of the ins and outs. But what we forget is that there is a gatekeeper that isn't necessarily a physician or a PI, but it's it's the site staff. And what we can do to make their lives easier, honestly, they're probably the most forgotten about stakeholder group in clinical research. Uh, they have the hardest, most difficult set of roles and responsibilities, most eclectic requirements, the most frustrated stakeholder groups around them. And they're constantly just shouted at to do better more often. And and I think that's unfair to them because if you've been in clinical research in the last 12 months, you know that your site coordinators, your site recruiters, they're attritioning out, they're finding other jobs, the the turnover rate's super high. And so by creating solutions for them that just make it easier and make sponsors have to shout a little less often, we think is doing right by them. Yeah, that's a great thing to work on. And I feel like sites are finding their voice also much more than even a year ago, which I think is, is critical because even though I think we're all excited about the concept of decentralized, um, I think most of us also recognize that there's still going to be a lot of site involvement in even some of the most decentralized studies or uh, hybrid studies, as we I think we'd call them. Um, so you were mentioning technology. So what do you want to take this from a technology standpoint? What is the vision you have if we if we fast forward in time? Sure. So we don't really market ourselves as a technology company because we're we're still building. I think you might start to see that change in 2023. But frankly, the, the technology that we're building has been designed for us to be better at recruiting patients. And I'll peel back the layer maybe one level more so you can understand the context behind this. Our payment structure, the way that we drive revenue at One End Health is almost purely incentive-based. So unless a patient 
is signing informed consent, we're really not getting paid. And so we've been extremely commercially focused in that we've been very clinically focused because getting to that endpoint of assigned consent means that we have to think through every part of that process, every part of that funnel to make sure we optimize the best we can getting that patient from an internet person to a clinical research participant. That takes a lot of things that we have to be able to do. And so I'll just go through a few of the features that we're working on to help us do our jobs better that we think will be um, available to CROs and to sponsors, whether they're a large farm or biotechs. So one of the things that was a keen observation early on is that in almost every update meeting where site network is present for a particular study, 50 minutes of the 60-minute call is around which sites need to be told to do better and which sites are doing great. That's that's almost the whole call every time. And so we wondered why there really wasn't a solution for being able to have a quick dashboard of how sites on study protocol are doing relative to the study average and relative to their peers and actually let sites have the ability to access that data if the sponsor approves of it. And so we're working on a pretty comprehensive site-level dashboard that looks at not just what are the KPIs of the study, how many leads does it take to get to an enrollment, but also what are the best practices that the the top performing sites are doing that are making those results happen and being able to share those best practices across the rest of the sites for the study as a whole. And I, I think this is a big big outage that that we've seen because we find ourselves being kind of the conduits of information of like, oh, well, it's Topeka and they're doing, they're calling four days in a row and then they're texting right after they call and then they're sending an email on the fifth day. Like we're sharing those best practices, but it's through anecdote and that's really old school way of thinking. So a lot of what we're doing is around creating the data elements and the tracking that it takes in order for those pieces, those best practices to be shared for the betterment of the study and frankly, for the visibility of the sponsor. So that's, that's one critical piece. I won't take you through the entire one and health roadmap here, but I think there's one other critical piece that that I think is really important. And that is an insight that we had that sponsors don't often know that a study is behind on enrollment until it's absolutely a dumpster fire. And I think that's because as performance marketers, we've got actually a pretty attuned sense of what that patient funnel looks like. How long does it take for them to go from a click to a form submission How long does it take for them to get from a form submission to a phone call? How long does it take to get from a phone call to an appointment, from an appointment to a randomization? We see that funnel very, very clearly. But if you're actually thinking thoughtfully about extrapolating what's happening and the drop-off points along those, what percents happens from one to the next, you can create a pretty compelling case as to when your LPI is going to be or when you need to really hustle to get get to your LPI timeline or when budgets aren't sufficient or when site infrastructure can't handle it, right? These are all insights that sponsors don't really know until they're staring down the end the, the end of their recruitment window and their their SOL because they've got they've got 52 few patients and they weren't actually anticipating it until a month before it happening. So the main point of what we're ultimately trying to do is taking kind of the observations that we have under the surface and applying real data capture to those as it occurs through the recruitment funnel, and then being able to display that in a data visualization that sponsors and sites can see. That's really the whole thesis of all we're trying to do. Simple technology features that make it easier for sites and that make sponsors see the whole picture. That's very sensible. It's almost crazy that that still isn't happening properly. We've all seen, I think, the tools on the actual marketing side that have done these things really well for a long time. But I think it just takes a lot of time to learn from other industries uh, sometimes. If we jump a little bit further into the future and you can sort of fantasize freely, you're allowed to mention blockchain, for example. (laughs) Where do you see this ultimately landing? Because I feel like there's a lot of companies trying to 
access patients through existing channels. Is this middle model going to like turn around at some point, you know, push versus pull and, and how can technology play into that? How do you see that? That's a great question. I'll just say anybody that gets on any podcast anywhere and says that they know, doesn't know. So I'll give you my pontification on the matter. I think that a silver bullet blockchain solution, particularly let's, let's take a, a particular use case like patient data records. So if a patient wants to own all of their data across all of their providers, right, that should be something that they can do without feeling like they're getting a root canal every time they try to gather it. Like that is not an easy process right now. And so a pragmatic solution, right? This I think is low hanging fruit. And I'd say five years out, 10 years out of this, but a patient being able to have some sort of tokenized solution that captures all of their medical records. And then with a click of a button and a token passcode, they can share some or all in part in full with whomever they choose. That can speed the line in a lot of these things, particularly for clinical research, but also for just standard of care. And so I, I think the issue with blockchain and all of this kind of web three concept is that almost everything that you hear out there is a solution that's in search of a problem. I mean, they're cool solutions. They're great, right? They make great white papers. They are great to fantasize about a, a better future. But I think ultimately what creates transformational change is our, our sticky products. And so if you look at what the iPhone did to communication and connection, it's because people freaking wanted to use it. And so part of what we're missing here with this Web3 phenomenon, and particularly with blockchain, is that it's this massive push of the builders of Web3 towards this unsuspecting patient population or consumer set that just doesn't want it, right? You, that's not how any revolution happens. And so I think what it's going to take is something that's just easy to use, that fits within the life you already live, that you don't have to make accommodations for, that just actually works. And I think uh, if there's somebody smart enough to build that in a way that makes it frictionless for patients and consumers, then I think it will explode because the infrastructure is largely already there. The last thing I would say is that I don't think that pharma is particularly interested in this. I mean, from the conversations I've had, this is like cool cocktail talk, but not necessarily things that are getting five minutes on a management team level. I mean, this is not something that's being looked at other than just a cursory update. So I think there also needs to be a shift there at the leadership level of top pharma, but it's possible that it could come from the ground up. And I guess we shall see. So before this session, you asked me why I wore both a Whoop and a, and a Garmin. And <laughs> I honestly don't have a really good answer for it, but like I like sleep tracking on the one and the rest on the other. And I like data. Um, but do you think that is actually a sensible avenue for this to sort of develop further in a more organic way, as opposed to it coming from the Web3 folks? I feel like a lot of people are taking ownership of some of their data right now through their fitness wearable. Do you think that could be an avenue or what are your thoughts on that? I'm just uh, kind of brainstorming here. I was triggered by what you said of how would this develop organically. First, I think it can come from anywhere. And I would say Whoop would still count, even though I think they've got like a a unicorn valuation, I'd still count from that. It's like the bottom up in terms of a company coming up with a solution for this. But the issue is, is, is fragmentation of data. You're literally a two-wristed representation of that, that you've got fragmented data literally as a person. And I think that's a microcosm of the rest of our lives, right? You've got two devices on each of your wrists, but I mean, think about how many from our computers to our phones, to our medical records, to our cars, to our nests at home, to the Google homes that we have, to right where, how many different places do we have data collected? And there's no common data currency, right? There's no way to make that kind of amalgamated and make sense. And I think that is a hard problem to solve, but I know for a fact that in order for it to be solved, you have to get the languages right, right? You can't have a ubiquitous solution that is connecting 
things that are fragmented in all of these languages unless there's a common denominator. I think that's the Rosetta Stone for Web3. If you can find something that brings all of these things together and make it make sense uniformly, that opens the floodgates for how you make it work together and talk together. I'm so grateful for how elegantly you sort of brought the end of this conversation back to data standardization and interoperability, which is, as you may know, one of my favorite topics that I've been preaching about for the past uh, 10 years. And I fully 100% agree with you. The problem is, from my perspective, there's a lot of incentive for all these individual platforms to keep the data to themselves because they all want to monetize it. And so how do we we break those barriers? I think ultimately the consumer is going to have to play a role in that and potentially web-free. I mean, it does make sense to an extent if you can more easily monetize data transfer for the individual on a secure platform, maybe blockchain. I mean, there is some sense to that, but I also think that like you, this is going to take it's going to take a while. I think we're both tech optimists from from what I'm hearing. They should just keep keep at it and keep pushing the envelope and then hopefully we'll make some some real progress soon. Do you have any parting any parting thoughts? Anything we should be aware of that is interesting for our listeners to take a look at? I would say maybe the most digestible. I mean this is hard, but it's digestible word of wisdom that I can give to clean ops market participants is that creative needs to change for patient recruitment. What we see, we find to be unimaginative and frankly, under-optimized for the opportunity. I think that patients are actually willing to listen to offers. They might not be willing to listen to clinical research pitches to join a study, but if you present what you're actually offering and you do it in a way that doesn't look like a doctor's office pamphlet that's just been clip-arted into a, a digital ad, If you really think about what they're interested in consuming from a content perspective, you create dynamic content for them. I think people would be surprised at how many folks would be interested in joining a clinical research study. Nice. That's a great take-home message. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all your insights. And I'm sure we'll be working together in in the future. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Dirk. Thanks for having me. Cheers. We hope this episode sparked new ideas and learnings for you today. You're listening to The Spark, your go-to source for powerful ideas about the future of clinical research. This podcast was brought to you by Castor, a leading provider of decentralized and hybrid clinical trial solutions to democratize research. Listen to The Spark on all streaming platforms anytime, anywhere.